ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. I'm Selena Green bringing you The Country Hour on this gorgeous Wednesday afternoon. Coming up, plenty going on in the dairy industry. One analyst is saying there's a growing probability of a whiplash effect. More on that in just a moment. But also today, we've come to the end of on-property Merino Ram sales for 2023. So has this been a positive one for South Australian breeders? Oh, look, the season started very strong in July. Um, sales were fantastic through August, early September. Uh, and really, I think it, it's held pretty strong right through. That's all comes so also coming up shortly. Don't forget my talkback number today, one three hundred triple two eight nine one, or send me a text at any time throughout the program on zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Well, a delicate balance of supply and demand is persisting for dairy products. One analyst says a possible whiplash for the industry is a growing probability. Global milk output is down, prices have followed. But that could all be about to change, perhaps dramatically. Michael Harvey is a senior analyst of dairy and consumer foods with Rabobank. Michael, good afternoon. Welcome to the Country Hour. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're talking today about something called a dairy whiplash. Firstly, can you just give us an explanation of what that term means? Yeah, it's really about a rapid response or shift in the... The, the cycle in commodity markets, which is what we're sort of talking about now. And if you look at the dairy complex over the last 12 months, we've gone through quite a significant upswing in, in commodity markets where we had record high pricing and then we've had a complete reversal of that and a quick drop down in commodity prices back to below five-year averages. So there's that question around will we see a whiplash effect and a rally in commodity markets from here on out, which is part of the discussion and I guess a whiplash, uh, when you think of it, uh, is something that happens extremely quickly and uh, perhaps without a, a great deal of warning. So it, it could be quite a rapid turnaround. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, commodity markets are always volatile in, in any form, but but dairy commodity markets have got a, a history of being quite volatile. So there's periods over the last ten, fifteen years where we've seen big upswings and, and which are quickly followed by quick. Um, downturns and, and, and those sorts of cycles coming through. So that's always something we're mindful of. But, I mean, there, there are supply and demand fundamentals that will have an impact on what, what actually happens with prices from here. But there's certainly that expectation now that we've sort of we've hit the bottom in the, in the market and then what's the next phase of the, the commodity market look like from here. What are the signs that this is looking probable now? The most prominent one in the last couple of months has really just been a deterioration in the outlook around milk supply around the world. Uh, particularly in export regions. And, and that's on the back of the simple fact that commodity markets have fallen and with that, farm gate prices have fallen quite quickly in a lot of export regions. And with that comes a margin squeeze for producers. And then you overlay that with, you know, weather-related risks in a lot of markets, high feed costs that are still permeating across the supply chain. So all of a sudden, the milk supply story, which wasn't very strong anyway, has got a little bit worse. And there's obviously, we've seen it with the US production growth numbers, there's obviously slowing production coming through in Europe, but the big focus in the next two months is really on the spring peak in this part of the world, but particularly New Zealand, and that's where 
you know, the production outlook doesn't look overly favourable. And, that, and that's the supply story that's got a little bit worse, which has freshened up the market and probably seen a little bit of risk around supply being priced into the market while we're nearing the bottom. Mm. What do we see with consumer demand and expecting to see with consumer demand overlaid with that? Yeah, and that's probably the, the handbrake from our perspective on why we'll we'll see a rapid recovery in commodity prices is the fact that on the demand side of the story, it is still quite soft. So you start at the pointy end and look at the consumer. I mean, consumers everywhere, obviously, under pressure with, with budget. So there's obviously a tightening of belts, and that does have an impact on the food basket. And clearly, dairy inflation has been a core component of food inflation in lots of economies around the world. So dairy consumption is quite resilient in, in, in many aspects, but there are some economies where, in certain categories, where you can see volume impact. So we, we talk about a very soft consumer demand setting for, for dairy markets around the world. But the other one, from, just from a pure supply and demand fundamental, I mean, we've still got China and their appetite for imports out of, uh, and product out of New Zealand still quite soft. So until you get that market rebalance in China, until you get a meaningful re-entry from their buyers in the global market, you're going to be a little bit cautious around how quickly prices can rally. Mm. And when buyers do flock back and you see that demand pick up again, I mean, how quickly can the supply rally and, and rebuild? I mean, is there always an inevitable delay period? And that, that, that's the potential for the whiplash effect here. I mean, if, if things improve quicker than expected in China or the demand settings recover, which we expect to happen, but if they recover quicker than expected, then all of a sudden we could get a quick rally in prices because of, that's what comes back to that supply story. There's not a lot of new milk being produced around the world. There's not a lot of stock in export regions around the world. So if the demand story recovers quicker or where we just we, we see better than expected, then absolutely you can see a bit of panic buying kicking in and, and that will certainly drive commodity prices higher quicker. Yeah. Is there anything that producers can do... Ahead, I mean, I guess it's always just a bit of a, a game of, uh, you know, what's the right decision at the right time. But, you know, bearing this in mind, is there anything that producers can do to prepare for this? Well, I mean, the, the, the fortunate thing for Australian dairy farmers in all this is that there's, you know, milk prices are locked away in the current season. So what's, what's going on with commodity markets at the moment is not going to have a material impact on farm gate prices in the current season. There's, there's clearly price risk around all this in, in the Australian supply chain, but a lot of that's sitting with the processes in terms of managing the downturn in commodity markets at a time when they've locked away their, the price they're paying for their milk. But it'll become more of a question and, and, and budgeting and planning decision for dairy farmers as we move into, you know, pricing for new season, which really won't be until, you know, first quarter of next year when they'll start to look at what new season look might look like. So for, for right now, I mean, producers have got the benefit and not don't have to worry too much around what's going on in global markets, but it, it's in six months' time we'll be looking at well, what is actually likely to mean for farm gate pricing in new season milk. And in the meantime, in terms of production coming out of Australia at the moment, sort of where are things sitting looking at the season that we're having? There's some green shoots there in terms of some stabilisation in the milk pool. We've got production numbers for the first stages of the new season. I mean, clearly last year was another big hit to milk production. It was down over 5% for the season and, you know, and widespread falls in production. So that's the, the drop in milk supply that's putting pressure on the supply chain. We're just starting to see some green shoots coming through. When, if you look at the production numbers, you know, there's certainly some production growth, year-on-year growth coming through in certain parts of the country. There's still some laggard states, uh, you know, and Victoria being the big producer where, you know, there's been some production numbers that are held back by just weather-related issues and things like that. So, 
a bit of a stabilisation coming in through in the milk pool. We're not going to see a rapid recovery in production because we're obviously coming out of a cycle of a fairly significant consolidation in the size of the industry. But it's good to see some stability coming through in the milk pool. We don't want to see the industry continuing to shrink. Michael Harvey, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us on the Country Hour today. appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Michael Harvey, a senior analyst of dairy and consumer foods with Rabobank. And speaking of dairy, you have probably heard about the uh, strike action going on over in Victoria involving a number of processing sites there. Stick around because later in the program you'll hear from workers and farmers involved uh, from the Victorian side of things and what, if any, impact this is having on South Australian suppliers as well. It's 13 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, the last of the on-property Merino ram sales wrapped up this past week here in South Australia. So how's the season gone? How happy would breeders be with this year's results overall? Well, I asked Matt Ashby, who is president of Merino SA. This year's Merino ram selling season has actually ended quite well. It's um, been very strong. Last year saw an increase in numbers in most on-property sales generally. Most um, studs increased their sales by a few numbers and sold them very well. This year, in 2023, they've managed to retain those numbers that they've offered and they've pretty much been on a par with their averages and their clearances, which has been um, a pretty good result overall. Just, um, yeah, thinking of what's happened within the industry probably since late June, July when it's... uh, there's been a quite a downfall in um, in lamb prices and, and meat prices generally. So clearance rates have been uh, not too bad at the sales this year? Yeah, no, they've been very solid. Um, the clearances have been great. Um, and just the fact that they've kept those numbers that they have increased on, say, 2021, increased them in 22 with um, the demand being there. And, and they've held you know pretty strong clearances again in 23. So, yeah. And what have you seen with the trends of, of prices in particular, the, I guess the highs and lows, and has that fluctuated much from you know, sort of the first sale to the last? Oh, look, the season started very strong in July. Um, sales were fantastic through August, September, early September, uh, and really I think it, it's held pretty strong right through, so that's pretty pleasing. Now, maybe there's, uh, you know, the, the U numbers have increased, the Merino U numbers, so that's probably um, helped with those sales and and kept those averages and the clearances strong. So, yeah, I'm thinking that's where it's sort of sitting there, just the increase in new numbers into those uh, commercial flocks. And in terms of uh, what's been in demand and the sort of qualities that buyers have been after, what has that been throughout the season? Oh, look, the quality's always there. Stud breeders um, keep ahead of the game and uh, keep new genetics in front of their commercial producers. So... Yeah, no, they're, they're over that pretty well and um, always got a product coming along that's relevant to the market, obviously to the, for the dual-purpose animal, keeping the, the body and the frame size up of their um, product plus, um, you know, keeping those elite walls available for their commercial producers to then on-sell through into, um, into the wool processing and the wool buying sector. So overall at this point of the year, how would you sort of sum up how everyone in the industry is kind of feeling at the moment? Well, that's a tricky one. They'd probably be happy with how their sales have been. Uh, the season has cut off very short. We've had very little spring rain, so the season's coming to a halt pretty quickly. And, um, yeah, I think the fears of uh, where the 
meat pricing is going. It's, it's going to be a bit tricky going through in the summer. And uh, obviously the Bureau have indicated that um, we're now in the uh, El Nino pattern, which indicates a, a dry season ahead. So, yeah, it's a bit worrying. But um, I think to stay positive, the, the wool pricing has held its own and um, is relatively strong in comparison to where it's been. So, you know, that's one positive, um, you know, with the uh, Merino breeders that um, they've got that to hang their hat on and say, look, hey, we've got a great wool product for our buyers and, and uh, you know, be proud of that and, um, you know, keep breeding it. As Matt Ashby there. Matt is president of Merino SA and also fourth-generation owner of the Ashrose Merino Stud. Takes us up to 17 minutes past 12. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. When my vocal valve opens and closes, I've got this little bump there which creates this rattle in the voice, this gravelly sound. Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. He was reaching down the throat with tiny scalpels and scissors that were mounted on things that looked like knitting needles. Hear the latest conversations. Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Another Wednesday has rolled around, so it's time to head to the markets. And first up, John Traeger has the Dublin sheep and cattle sale results for you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Quality was only fair to average as agents offered 5,500 lambs and 1,200 sheep. The usual buyers were present and operating, along with more restocker activity this week. Secondary lambs made up the bulk of the offering, and these sold firm to slightly easier on the current depressed pricing. Heavyweight new season lambs were in the minority, however these posted a slight increase in price as an exceptional pen of heavyweights topped the sale at $150 per head. Mutton quality was again good, with prices again firm on the recent depressed pricing. Extremes light young lambs sold from $2 to $27 as lightweights ranged from $7 to $48. Medium trade weights ranged from a low of $7 to $43 as trade weights managed $53 to $90. Heavyweights sold from $95 to $120 as the few extreme heavyweights sold from $122 to $134. Extremely light older lambs sold from 5 to 20 as medium weights ranged from 18 to 40. Trade weights managed 15 to 88 in an extremely mixed offering as heavyweights sold from 82 to $118. Extreme heavyweights sold from 116 to the top of $150 per head. Hoggets sold from $20 to $72 as medium weight ewe mutton sold from $16 to $20 and heavier weights made $5 to $27. Rams sold from $5 to $11. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, pastoral cattle from the Port Augusta region made up the bulk of the offering as agents offered 200 live weight and open auction cattle. Quality was again extremely mixed, however some ideally finished local cattle were presented with the usual buying group joined by feeders and restockers. Prices remained generally firm for most classes as plainer cattle were mostly overlooked. Light pastoral calves sold 112 cents, medium weights ranged from 156 to 222 cents as local calves sold from 150 to 196 cents. Heavier calves sold from 178 to 202 cents. Light pastoral heifers sold 110 cents as medium and heavier local calves ranged from 134 to 170 cents a kilo. 
Pastoral yearling steers sold from 186 to 220 cents, as local cattle sold from 180 to 192 cents. Pastoral yearling heifers sold from 98 to 146, as local cattle sold from 112 to 160 cents a kilo. Grain steers sold from 140 to 200 cents, as grain heifers ranged from 120 to 178 cents. Light cows sold from 30 to 80 cents, as medium and heavy cows ranged from 80 to 156 cents. Bulls sold from 80 to 152 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks for those results, John Traeger there. And now let's head to Peter Kerr because he's got the latest from the Mount Gambier sale for you. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Selena. This is the Mount Gambier Cattle Report for the 18th of October. Numbers east this week is Asia's yard of 658 head of live weight and open option cattle. These sold to a large field of regular trade and processor buyers, along with feeder and restocker interest, with some improved competition over the pens. Quality was good in a dearer market. Feelers lifted in price by 20 to 40 cents as steers to the trade, made from 215 to 238 cents. Similar heifers making from 160 to 230 cents a kilogram. Feeders sought steers to 205 cents with the restockers active over both sexes from 134 to 213 cents a kilogram. Yearling steers to the trade made from 172 to 242 cents with a lift of 30 cents. Heifers range from 168 to 192, a rise there of 15 cents a kilogram. Feeders sought yearlings from 153 to 238 cents with the restockers support on steers. From 140 to 206 cents a kilogram. Growing steers and bullocks made from 234 to 261 cents a trade buys with a lift of 6 to 20 cents. Feeder activity from 200 to 240. Growing heifers to the trade returned from 195 to 208 cents as manufacturing steers sold from 156 to 190 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows lifted 13 cents to range from 152 to 188. Lighter lots. From 120 to 156 as bulls returned from 135 to 180 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Peter. Peter Kerr there with those market results. And in just a sec, we'll head off to the Weather Bureau. You are with Selena Green this morning here on the country, this afternoon here on the Country Hour. It is just going on 23 minutes past 12. Music's one of the most beautiful ways of telling stories. Hi, Zan Rowe here. My Take 5 series is back with a brand new season. This song has a special place in my heart. I'll ask Noel Gallagher, Natalie Imbruglia, Jimmy Barnes, Mark Cole-Smith, G Flip and Lin-Manuel Miranda to share five songs that have shaped their life. Music was everything. Season 2 of Take 5 with me, Zan Rowe. I'm there. Tuesday nights on ABC TV and ABC iView. All right, let's go to the Weather Bureau. Simon Timke is our forecaster today at the Bureau. Hello. G'day, Selena. Uh, Another glorious-looking day across much of the state by the looks of it. Certainly plenty of sunshine out there. That's right, looking at the satellite picture at the moment. No cloud uh, across South Australia. In fact, no cloud even close to South Australia. Uh, and, and the reason for, for those stable, um, sunny skies is uh, the high-pressure ridge that's extending over South Australia from a, a high-pressure centred over the Tasman Sea. Uh, a little bit of cloud further to the west, though. There is a, a, a trough moving across, uh, uh, I guess, central parts of, of Western Australia. Uh, and there is a bit of cloud associated with that. Uh, and that trough 
will gradually move eastwards uh, and, and we'll see it move into the, the far west of South Australia on Thursday. But, but ahead of that trough, generally uh, east to northeasterly winds, conditions over most parts are, are a little bit warmer than yesterday uh, and obviously drier conditions with, uh, with those uh, clear skies. Uh, might be a little bit of sea breeze uh, activity near the coast during the afternoon but uh, probably not as fresh as the sea breezes were yesterday. Uh, on Thursday, that, uh, that trough will move over the far west uh, and we'll see the winds tend around more northeast to northwesterly uh, ahead of that. Uh, and conditions are a little bit warmer than today again in that northeast to northwesterly flow. Uh, and behind the trough, we'll see the winds turn more um, southwest to southerly uh, and they'll be a little bit fresher and, and drag some cooler air up from the south. Uh, on Friday, we'll see that trough. Uh, extend across central and eastern parts of, of the state during the day uh, and uh, again um, fairly hot conditions ahead of the change but becoming much cooler behind the change as those uh, uh, southwest to southerly winds gradually extend across the state behind the change. Uh, at this stage even uh, with that change moving across it does look like Friday will be pretty much dry across the state maybe a couple of very light showers about western and southern coasts but no significant rainfall totals expected out of that. Um, but as that uh, uh, trough continues to move away to the east uh, over the weekend we will still see a little bit of shower activity um, uh, develop following that. So I think we'll see some, some showers uh, uh, mostly about the southern agricultural area but the odd shower uh, near western coasts and about the far southwest of the Flinders district as well on, uh, on Saturday. Uh, and much cooler conditions as well on, on Saturday with those, uh, those moderate to fresh southwest to, to southeasterly winds extending across all, all districts. Uh, Sunday we'll see those showers contract back to just near southern coasts. They'll mostly clear by early afternoon, I think. Uh, and then on, uh, on Monday, we'll see conditions warm up a little bit. It should be dry across the state, maybe a little bit cold in the south to start off with, a little bit of patchy frost to start off with on, on Monday morning. Um, but uh, but should be dry during the day. Tuesday and Wednesday, though, another trough moving across. We'll see a, a little bit of shower activity, uh, again, mostly confined to the southern agricultural area uh, and, uh, and near western coasts. Things warming up a little bit ahead of that trough, uh, but like uh, the change later this week, we will see some fresh and gusty and cooler southwest to southerly winds coming behind uh, Tuesday's change. Uh, but as far as those rainfall totals go, obviously not much in the way of showers to talk about for the week ahead, so the rainfall totals will be on the low side. For that four-day period out to the end of Sunday, uh, generally expecting less than two millimetres about the southern agricultural area, uh, near western coasts and about the far southwest of the Flinders district. We might see the, the odd spot here or there pick up a little bit more, maybe some local falls of two to five millimetres about the lower southeast district, Kangaroo Island and the Mount Lofty Ranges, but uh, generally speaking, mostly dry conditions for the week ahead, Selena. All right, thanks for that, Simon. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Selena. Simon Timkey, who is our forecaster today.
at the Weather Bureau. So taking a look at the Upper Western and Lower Western Western Inland Districts of New South Wales, for tomorrow the Upper Western District is looking at a sunny day with east to south easterly winds, 15 to 25 k's an hour. They're going to tend east to north easterly in the morning and then become light by the middle of the day. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 12 and 15 degrees. Daytime temperatures will reach the low to mid-30s. For the Lower Western District, a sunny day with light winds becoming north easterlies, 15 to 20 k's an hour in the morning and then becoming light in the middle of the day. Overnight temperatures there will fall to between 9 and 12 degrees. Daytime temps reaching up into the low 30s. It is coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour with Selena Green. In this next half an hour, uh, you will get a bit of an update on what's going on over in Victoria uh, where a significant number of dairy factory workers and milk tanker drivers are on strike today. What impact is it having on Victorian dairy farmers? And uh, we've heard of at least one Victorian supplier who's had to tip out thousands of litres of premium milk because uh, there's no one to come and collect it. What, if any, impact is it having over on this side of the border here in South Australia? And a noxious weed that hails from Japan. How on earth did it turn up in a couple of busy fishing ports here in South Australia the first time it's been found in our state? More on that to come as well after 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. I'm here for you for the next half an hour. And in that time, I'll bring you up to speed on a huge strike involving dairy factory workers and milk tanker drivers in Victoria. Why are they striking? What, if any, impact could that have on dairy farmers here in South Australia that supply to those factories because there's concerns about milk going to waste and even stories of some farmers having to dump their milk? And we'll find out how a noxious Japanese seaweed ended up in a couple of our state's busy boat launching sites. It is considered an established invasive species in around 13 different countries um, worldwide. It's not previously been detected in South Australia um, and this detection does represent a range extension. More on that to come. Uh, But first, let's go to Matt Coleman because he's waiting to give you some news headlines. Hi, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has described the bombing of a hospital in Gaza as a massacre and has cancelled his meeting with the US President Joe Biden. Hundreds of people have been killed in the blast, which Hamas is blaming on Israel, but the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says barbaric terrorists in Gaza attacked the hospital. It all comes as the US President Joe Biden is on his way to Israel. He was supposed to travel to Jordan for meetings with Arab leaders. Those talks have now been cancelled. The state government has secured enough support from the crossbench in Parliament to pass legislation to merge the universities of Adelaide and South Australia. SA Best MLC Connie Benares and One Nation MLC Sarah Game will support the bill once it's introduced to Parliament. 
and China has denied claims that it's spying on other nations on an unprecedented scale. Beijing says they're groundless accusations and has described them as smears. Australia's spy chief Mike Burgess earlier said China's intellectual property theft is unmatched. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt. Matt Coleman there with those headlines. Well, 1,400 dairy workers are on strike today across Australia's largest dairy production state in Victoria in unprecedented industrial action. Yesterday, Saputo milk tanker drivers went on strike across eastern Victoria, affecting not only Saputo suppliers but other small companies which use the same truck network. And then today, dairy factory workers are protesting against pay and conditions against Saputo but also Fonterra, Lactalis and Peter's Ice cream factories at 14 sites across regional and metropolitan Victoria. Derek Dent is one of those workers on strike. We've been bargaining with our various employers for uh, over the course of this year and we're just chasing a, a fair wage increase and uh, change to some of our working conditions. Um, we're really just trying to get a fair wage increase to combat the, the crushing cost of living. What kind of wage increase are you looking for? Uh, that's entirely up to the members. Um, I think realistic expectations is about 5% per year. Um, I don't think that's uh, anything outlandish. We're still well behind when it comes to the cost of living. Have you been made any offers as yet by Saputo? Yeah, so Saputo uh, have made bargaining very difficult. We've been bargaining with them since uh, April. Their opening offer was a 3% wage increase and they've since come up to 4% in the first year. Um, Derek, what is it like working... In a, in a milk processing factory, in a dairy processing factory. Take me through a day. Uh, so a day for me, um, we work 12-hour shifts. All of my uh, friends and members here at Langatha work 12-hour shifts. Uh, we manufacture the Devondale Long Life milk uh, as well as the Devondale butter. Uh, so a day for me starts at 6am, um, processing milk at various speeds and, and varieties of uh, uh, milk. Um, and it's long, hard days. It's often quite hot. It's loud. It's noisy. It's um, it's strenuous. Uh, there are da- there are periods of downtime as well. Uh, don't get me wrong. Um, but all the workers here at Langatha make this job look easy. But it's not. It takes a long time to to get good at this job, and it takes a lifetime to perfect it. And some of us are still chasing that perfection. The Transport Workers Union are currently striking and that strike will continue into tomorrow when your union will also be striking. Is this a coincidence that both the unions are taking action at the same time? It is actually. It's, um, it's, I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, this is the first time in about 20 years that two different unions at the same workplace here in Langatha have taken industrial action. Um, I think that speaks volumes for the current uh, climate, to be honest, yeah. If there's no outcome, if there's no result um, that is approved by the members of the union, what's next? That's a very good question. Um, what happens next, that's entirely up to the members. If, if Saputo come back to the table with a fair offer, obviously the uh, bargaining team um, will give that back to the members and they'll give it their endorsement if we think it's fair. But of course it's up to the members to decide what they think is fair. Um, the members have told the company what they want. They've told them what their expectations are. And we just want Saputo to listen. That's Derek Dent, who is one of the workers on strike today over in Victoria. 
Well, Saputo, Liangatha, dairy factory worker, uh, was speaking there to Fiona Broom. Gippsland dairy farmer Benjamin Vag says while the tanker picked up his milk yesterday, he's had little information about what will happen over the next few days, is what he had to say. We don't know what the intentions are of the strike and there's some risk here for a lot of dairy farmers not getting their milk picked up. Who picked up from your place this morning? I supply third party and Saputo run the logistics for them. So Saputo picked it up. I assume Saputo picked it up this morning. You're concerned that this has the potential to run longer than the 48 hours that they've declared for this round of strikes? That's the real risk here. Is this a 12-hour thing, 24-hour thing? There's not a lot of information out there for the average dairy farmer. So we really just want to know some more what's going on. What happens on farm if trucks don't come to pick up your milk? That is a environmental disaster because many of us are going to have to hold the milk on the property. We will have to spray it onto the pastures, but no one really wants to do that because it's a couple thousand dollars gone. Do you have any protection against that happening, financial protection? We do, but also our relationship with our processes we would like to think would help come into play there. Is this something you've ever had to do before, dump milk, because it hasn't been picked up? No, we've been fortunate here because we're on a main power line but and we're on a main road. But other farmers have definitely had to do that over the last two, three years during COVID when we had those freak storms across Gippsland. I'm sure everyone was close to doing it. Or there were some farmers that were a couple of days out of the milk not being able to pick up, not through electrical faults, but trees across the roads. How long can you hold out before you would have to start dumping milk? Fortunately for me, I got picked up this morning, but it could be... It could be every 12 hours because I am producing more than I can hold on farm. And would that be the same for other producers? Other producers potentially don't have smaller vats like I do. So they may be okay, but there's a lot of producers out there who produce a lot more literage of milk than I do. Do you have any sympathy for the transport workers who are striking? Yeah, we do. They're members of our community. But their actions are impacting us and also impacting our community. So, yeah... The local economy is run by the dairy industry in Langatha. So if dairy stops, the Langatha economy stops. So we really need the two parties to sort this out in the next 48 hours. As Langatha South dairy farmer Benjamin Vag there speaking to Fiona, Fiona Broom. Uh, well, South Australian dairy farms do supply to some of these Victorian processing sites where strikes are occurring today. So is this having any effect on this side of the border? Uh, and uh, is milk being picked up? South Australian-based dairy farmer Rick Gladigo is president of the Australian Dairy Farmers. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, we've just heard a bit about what's happening over in Victoria with the, the strike action there. From what you've heard, Rick, is, is this likely or having any impact thus far on uh, producers here in South Australia? From what I've heard so far is that it, it's just been focused in Victoria now at the moment. Um, there isn't any sites in South Australia from what I've been made aware of. Uh, but there are some sites in southwest Victoria that uh, obviously South Australian milk could be going to. So whether there's some issue with that, it probably may mean not so much about the, the TWU strike, but more about the UWU strike in factories themselves. Right, and I imagine that um, if there are South Australian dairy processors sort of sitting there with, with milk waiting to be picked up, uh, they'd be letting you know about it? 
I would hope so. I would certainly have been hoping through my sources that that I'd be contacted. The the side with this that is that uh, there has been notice that this strike action was going to happen. So obviously the processes have been looking at how can we handle the milk uh, coming into the factory or you know, how will we process it or collect it or whatever. So they've had some time to work through that, which from my understanding, uh, even in Victoria, is they've managed to collect most of the milk so far. So um, so I hope that that would happen here with any affected farmers as well. Obviously, at this stage, it's we're pretty short into this action. But if it is um, ongoing further, Rick, I guess from a, a national scale of, of milk supply and the impact back on dairy farmers, do you have any concerns about that? Oh, certainly, and for the whole of industry. You know, we've only just been talking about dairy product being imported, given our Australian price versus, say, the New Zealand price. We're seeing New Zealand product coming in here. The supermarkets are going to put dairy product on the shelf because they know that it's a, a product that people want and so they're going to source it from somewhere. So it starts to then put a lot of things at risk in regards to jobs, etc. If, uh, if we're not supplying it, they're going to get the product from somewhere. So, And on the other side, we've got, with a fallout from, the, from this action, and so we've got the mum and dad, the family farms, etc., who you know, they're up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning because the cows need to be milked. The cows don't care if there's a union strike. They need to be milked. So they're doing the job and you know they, they want to be paid for it as well. And so this just has a whole fallout along the whole chain of going, well, farmers need to be paid for what they're producing. They have a love for what they do. We're producing a nutritious product. Um, we need this issue sorted as soon as quick possible. The processes and unions need to sit down and get this sorted and and let's look after the Australian dairy industry. Yeah, because I imagine that must be a heartbreaking prospect to uh, to put all of that effort and, you know, talk about the effort and work that goes into producing milk and getting it off the farm in the first place to hear about it potentially going to waste must just be a heartbreaking thought for dairy farmers. Uh, it, it is. It's a horrible thought to think that they've gone through all that effort, all that work. They love what they do. They're really proud of what they do as a dairy farmer to produce such a quality nutritious product for consumers. And at a time of food security and everything else going on in the world, you, you know, this isn't an issue that we want to have to be dealing with and that you want to be putting extra stress on farmers when you know this is a time when they're doing hay and silage and everything else as well. Isn't just another burden of, is my milk going to get collected? And if not, what am I going to have to do with it? We've heard a bit about uh, projections for the industry and in terms of milk supply and prices and that sort of thing. But from a consumer perspective, you, how much are you needing Australian buyers to, to support Australian dairy when they're going to the supermarket? Uh, 100%. We want Australians to be buying Australian product. We're proud of what we do. We produce a quality product. Uh, Australian consumers can be well uh, knowledgeable and and assured that what we produce in Australia is a is a world standard product, if not better than even world standard. It is so. We need them to support us because that way they know where the product's coming from. It's about food security. We saw during COVID times when you know, importing countries shut the gate and weren't bringing stuff into Australia anymore, which was great, but. Um, we uh, we know that that's what can happen is we can't rely on on the outside world of supplying us our, our basic food product at, at that. Rick Ladigo, thanks so much for joining us on the Country Hour today. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me.
Rick Gallagher, uh, Gallagher there. He's a South Australian-based dairy farmer, but he's also president of the Australian Dairy Farmers. And we also checked in uh, earlier with the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association. Uh, their understanding was that uh, South Australian-based suppliers to Sapoto, Saputo are having their milk collected still. Uh, and hopefully that continues. But if you are a South Australian dairy farmer and that's not the case for you, of course, get in touch with us and let us know. If you do want to read more about this story, the impact of uh, what is happening over in Victoria, the ABC has a great article up online that you can read right now. And they have actually, uh, our Victorian counterparts have actually spoken with a Victorian-based dairy farmer near Gippsland who uh, actually had to dump 14,000 litres of uh, high-value milk down the drain yesterday because of uh, the fact that there was no one to come and collect it from the farm. Uh, apparently valued around $10,000 uh, that this uh, Gippsland farmer has had to dispose of. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, a type of seaweed that has infested waters off Tasmania and Victoria as far west as Portland has now been found here in South Australia for the first time. The wakami or Japanese kelp, it's a seaweed that's been discovered at a couple of busy fishing ports and popular tourism spots, both uh, the Lake Butler Marina at Robe and the Cape Jaffa Marina near Kingston in the southeast. Wakami is listed as an Australian priority marine pest. It's also regarded as noxious in South Australia under the Fisheries Management Act. Persa Senior Biosecurity Officer for Invasive Species, Chloe McSimming, explained to Eugene Boisvert about, well, firstly, what wakami is. Wakami is a brown algal species which is native to Japan, Korea and China. It is considered an established invasive species in around 13 different countries um, worldwide, including New South Wales and also Australia. Um, in Australia, it is considered established in Tasmania and also Victoria, um, so as far west as Portland in Victoria, which is quite close to the state border. Um, it's not previously been detected in South Australia, um, and this detection does represent a range extension. And what's so bad about it? So wakami is an opportunistic brown algal species that can quickly colonise disturbed areas, so areas that have had recent storm events um, and artificial structures such as marinas and boat ramps. It's listed as an Australian priority marine pest species as a nationally significant marine pest and is also listed as noxious in South Australia under the Fisheries Management Act. Wakami can tolerate a large range of environmental conditions and it can spread quickly and has a high reproductive output. It's considered to be a nuisance firefowler on vessels, equipment and also infrastructure. So does it crowd out native species or harm marine animals at all? It is more of an opportunistic species, um, so it's not great at outcompeting native species. If there has been a storm event in a native environment, um, then it can colonise those areas and start to grow in the native environment. So how would it have got there? The primary introduction method for this species is via um, biofouling on vessels. So if a vessel had wakami on it and then moved to this area, it could potentially have spread that way. Um, it can spread naturally as well, um, but that's quite a, quite a far distance from Portland to Robe through natural dispersal. And what is PERSA going to do about it or what can be done about it? Yes, yeah, so PERSA is developing and consulting on a response plan which includes different management options for Wakami in South Australia. So we have met with other government departments and local councils to discuss the management options and we will be consulting with industry stakeholders on the plan as well. Um, we will then consider the feedback received from all parties before deciding on a management option. Would you be trying to get rid of it altogether or would it be 
a matter of trying to reduce it from spreading further? So that's something that we still need to decide on. Um, at the moment, uh, because it is an Australian um, priority pet marine pest species, we have a national requirement to limit the spread of the species while deciding on a management option. The local council at Robe had been planning to dredge the marina there to make passage easier for large boats out to the sea. This has now been put on hold, but the council has applied for a special ministerial permit to allow dredging to go ahead with certain conditions to prevent the wakami spreading. The council's acting chief executive, Pauline Karitza, explains. So we've been working very closely with PERSA over the last few weeks to expedite that permit because... We understand that it is causing the need for dredging is really important to the fishermen in the area and other users of that um, harbour. It is some cause for concern for them. So as I mentioned before, we have been working very closely with PERSA to obtain that permit. As soon as we obtain the permit and we understand um, the actions that we need to take, uh, we'll commence them and organise that dredging as soon as possible after that. So is the worry that dredging will stir up the sand and seaweed and spread the weed more around? That will be something that PERSA will be advising us on. It may require us to undertake the dredging in different ways to our original intention. But again, that will be some of the conditions that are placed on the permit and we will be working with PERSA on how best to, to minimise the spread of the, um, of the seaweed any further than it is already. So are there other activities at all affected at the marina? You know, for example, boats going in and out um, for fishing and the, there's a new tour company there as well? Well, that's the purpose of the dredging. Obviously, there's sand build-up in the bottom of the harbour and that can impact um, the bottom of uh, boats as they come in and out. So the sooner we can start that dredging, the, the better for all involved. In the marina, you'd be encouraging boat owners to make sure the boats are clean or um, different things like that? There will be quite an extensive education program that will be underway that will um, be advising the actions for boat owners to take to help minimise the spread of the wakami. That's Robe District Council's acting CEO, Pauline Karitza there, speaking with Eugene Boisvert. So Wakami, best described as a green to golden brown colour with smooth blades that stop well short of its base. The plants are usually up to one metre long, but they can extend up to three metres long. So if you want to see some pictures of what they look like and read a bit more about the impact it's having, uh, you can hop on the ABC Southeast SA website. Perza also has some photos of it on their website as well. If you do sight any wakami while you're out and about, uh, you can actually report it to Fishwatch on this number, one 800 or you can report it on the SA Fishing app as well. Sounds like something we certainly don't want spreading any further. It's 10 minutes to one. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour on this Wednesday. We hear the term forensic science and probably what pops to mind is TV shows like CSI and how it's utilised to solve crimes. But it's also turning into a pretty useful tool in tracing where your food has come from. And a Western Australian forensic science company is being used to verify the provenance of certain seafood products sold in Australian supermarkets. So the scientists using crime-fighting technology to figure out if prawns were caught where the label says they were caught. They've also been hired to figure out if grain sold by Russia on the global market has been grown in Ukraine. The company is source certain, and the founder director is Cameron Scatting, who says demand for their services from the ag industry is on the rise. 
I think agriculture has had a 10-year head start to some extent when you look across the other sort of verticals we work in, which can range from minerals and metals to things like diamonds. The mineral sector in particular, you know, hasn't had to contend with a lot of the requirements around the, the traceability of products, whereas agriculture has. And so what we're seeing in agriculture is a rapid um, rise in, in things like sustainability claims, so the how um, products might have been grown or made. Um, underneath the how is obviously the where, and, and that's what we do. And so we're definitely seeing an increase in demand um, around services that we offer. Uh, in terms of the why, I, I think there's a, there's a few um, reasons for that. One of them is consumers. I think consumers are definitely more aware of the impact that their purchase has on not just the planet, but also the people that are inside the supply chain. I think the other driver is regulatory, and, and obviously that's linked to consumers or the general public, but we're seeing sort of unprecedented intervention from regulators around the world, trying to stop you know, damage to the planet, such as rainforests, and, and they're doing that with, with regulatory intervention around transparency, which is the where products have come from. Let's just take a few examples of what you've been working on. You've been asked to check where some grain has been grown. This is grain that ended up in Turkey, but it's a project involving the UK government. What's the story? We've been working around grain for sort of six to 12 months now. One of the, the use cases is you know, grain that is hitting the international markets and has it come from, for example, Ukraine or Russia. And so we've been working in that area for, for six months. I, I, I didn't expect that grain would be something that we're working on, but um, as we see these types of geopolitical issues arise, we're certainly seeing a number of countries around the world more engaged and interested in knowing um, where these products are coming from. Uh, we're seeing that sort of emerge uh, into a broader um, service offering around you know, grains generally. And so Australia has a, a popular um, green image, which is related to the, the how, but also the scale at which we grow our grain here. Um, and we're seeing engagement, not just from farmers, but also international markets to be able to verify provenance of grains, including from, from Australia. So I gather the interest with the grain that you're looking at is trying to prove as to whether it's been stolen, <laughs> whether it was grown in Ukraine and and stolen by Russia and, and sold as its own? It's a really, really challenging topic. And I know that when we first talked about this work, that some of the questions that came about was, you know, some of the countries where this grain ends up, you know, obviously it's a key part of their food security. And sort of our response to that and my response to that is, is that, you know, we're not trying to take food off the table for these countries. But I think it's really important that when certainly countries or, or companies, especially large supply chain companies, make decisions about the commodities that they buy, that they can trust in the information they're provided. And that includes country of origin or being able to identify a product that that has certainly an integrity back to where it's been grown. And obviously with the tension associated with Russia and Ukraine, there's a lot of pressure on that global commodity supply chain. Is this forensic science able to be applied to the seafood industry? Because the prawns and the fish, they move. <laughs> yes, uh, it certainly can. And I'm, I think probably the seafood sector is probably our most mature offering. Uh, so we have a, a long-standing service in place with Australian wild prawns, which are the ones fished out of the ocean. So we can verify back to a, a specific fishery where a prawn has come from. So what we then do is we actually go into retail and into supply chains and take covert samples and then check, you know, are they true to the claim, which is often, is it Australian first? And then which fishery has it come from? And so I'm pleased to say that that wild Australian prawn supply chain is 
of very high integrity. I mean, that's obviously as a result of the commitment by industry, firstly, but also the work that we've done there. So when you when you go into a supermarket and see, for example, a MSC, which is a sustainably certified prawn, you can actually trust that it's actually come from that particular fishery. We also work in uh, fish species such as um, snapper, but also barramundi, uh, all of which are subject to or at risk of substitution with imported um, products. Like I said, really, really mature service offering for us. Uh, still lots of work to do, but, but seafood is certainly taking a leadership role there. How on earth can you prove it though? As I said, you know, these animals are moving around all over the place, changing their location. Yeah, so it depends on the, the product type. And so in the examples of prawns, they do move around, but it is limited or constrained to the fishery typically that they are in. So as part of that program, as an example, we actually collect samples from all of those locations throughout the year and we actually map or determine the fingerprint for those particular locations. That's what gives us the capability to then go into the stores and take the covert purchases. It's starting to make a bit more sense now that you've said fingerprint. Is it almost a bit like DNA testing as well? Yes, it's similar. So DNA profiling, which obviously from a forensic science perspective, it was kind of made famous by lots of those kind of CSI type shows. It's, it is similar. So DNA is a, it's effectively a matching, right? Is, is that profile the same as? It's not dissimilar to that, except we, we measure a whole heap of chemicals. Um, that includes molecules, but also elements and isotopes. And we build from those measurements what is quite a complicated, um, extensive profile, which we call a fingerprint, that profile can then be compared to products off the shelf. Just chatting to Cameron Scatting, who's a forensic scientist involved with some clients who are in the agricultural industry. Now, I gather you've also got some clients in horticulture, people trying to prove exactly where apples have been grown. Why is that? Yes, we've had a long, another long-standing um, client in certainly horticulture here in WA. So the the, what is quite famous, the Bravo apple, which um, you can see is that great big burgundy apple that you see on the store. So Bravo has been with us for a few years now. Um, so what we're able to do with Bravo apples is we can take a, an apple off the shelf and verify the orchard by which it's been grown. Why does it matter? It matters because obviously they care a lot about their brand and they're investing in protecting their brand, but also Bravos are delivered by licensed orchards, so people that are allowed to grow the apple. And obviously it's a, it's a variety that was developed here in Western Australia and, and it's important that the royalties flow back to Western Australia if, if um, someone is growing them. That's Cameron Scadding, who is founder and managing director of Source Certain. He's speaking to Richard Hudson there about his work as a forensic scientist and some of the fascinating ways it's being used to prove that the food you're buying is coming from where it says it's coming from. If you'd like to read more rural, great rural stories, and ones like the one you just heard, or perhaps more about the dairy strike going on over in Western Victoria and uh, that dairy farmer who poor. Uh, thousands of litres of his milk down the drain, head to the website, which I neglected to give to you. It is abc.net.au forward slash rural. It's almost time for me to hand over to the one and only Sonia Feldoff. Hello, good afternoon. Hello, hello, Selena. Yes, hey, today, if you're a book lover, you're going to love it after two o'clock because Trent Dalton's going to be in the studio with me. Now, he, of course, is the author of Boy Swallows Universe, All Shimmering Skies, All uh, the Shimmering Skies, and his latest book um, is called Lola in the Mirror. He's going to be talking to us about that one. So really looking forward to welcoming him. Today is also World Menopause Day. Now, you might be a bloke going, that's nothing for me. I tell you what, if you have a woman in your life over 40 
it's something for you. I can tell you that much. And we're going to find out a little bit more about why the shame continues around menopause and discussing a lot of its details. If anyone can talk about it, a woman of a certain age like me can talk about it with you. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Sonia. Have a great show. Sonia Feldoff with you for Afternoons with those stories and more. Thanks for your company. News time. To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the app store on your phone. Search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.